0: Welcome to another episode of New Wine Table Talks on Facebook Live. I'm Dr. Matt Farlow, and right next to me to this side is Dr. Brad Harper, and right below us is Dr. Metzger, right where he should be. Um, so I'm excited today to be talking to uh, the two of these guys. Uh, we're going to be talking about the topic of the church, but specifically be talking to these two gentlemen because they wrote a book. And there has always been a strong need to better understand what it means to be the church. And both uh, Metzger and Harper in this book claim that their book is only an ex exploration into ecclesiology. The reality is, and I don't say this lightly because I'm a reader and I, I dig books. Uh, so I don't uh, wax eloquent, eloquent when it comes to books, but this is a brilliant book. It's a book that is needed uh, in light of our needed engagement uh, with culture today. So the question to you, Brad, uh, as well as then to you, Paul, is so why did you write the book? What did you, uh, what was the hope of the book? And then after that, uh As you're explaining that maybe you guys could go into this big neat word called ecclesiology what does it mean
1: yeah so um you know we 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 wrote the book um as a result of you know having been teaching uh an ecclesiology theology class for several years and just reading through you know the stuff that had been written over the last couple of decades i got to the place where honestly I didn't find any ecclesiology texts that I really liked that much. Um, the, I, the ones that were written by evangelicals for the most part um, were really good in the sense that they were biblical. They dealt with the biblical text really well, but they did very little with church history. They did very little with, with structures and um, tradition and creedal statements and those types of things. They really didn't deal with that very much. And I had just spent eight years studying theology in a Roman Catholic university. And so, you know, and and had absorbed, you know, some really powerful, important things about the high ecclesiology, the high church theology of the Roman Catholic church. I wanted some of that structure. I thought it was really helpful to evangelicals. Um, But books written by Roman Catholics, really, they they weren't as, as good biblically and they didn't take evangelicals into consideration. I mean when you're there's 1.5 billion of you in the world you really don't have to think about that little group of evangelicals that much and yeah you know, there were texts out there written by lutherans which were great but they were very parochial you know so lutheran view of the church so i was looking for something that would be evangelical and that it would be a really biblical investigation of the church but also would would think through and investigate and integrate um, Structures and thought processes of uh, the history of the church and a wide array of denominations. I just didn't see anything out there like that. I sat down with Paul and I said, "Man, I, I just don't see anything like what you and I would like to do. I think we need to write an ecclesiology." And so he said, "Great, you know, let's do it."
0: And Paul, do you want to? I mean what is ecclesiology then? So you want to write it, so what are you writing on?
2: Well, and, you know, just further to what Brad had said, uh, you know, with his connection with Roman Catholicism, uh, with his doctoral studies and my doctoral studies, <clears throat> you know, I had opportunity to work not only with Colin Gunton at King's College London, but also John Zulis, uh, who's Greek Orthodox. And so, we thought, of course, we want to account for our Protestant heritage and Protestant evangelical heritage, uh, and we also wanted to account for the broader church tradition. In addition to Protestantism, of course, it, it flows forth from Catholicism, and Catholicism and Orthodoxy split, you know, uh, many many uh, years prior to that uh, split between Luther and the Catholic Church that he had been a part of. So we thought it was important having learned so much from our interaction with uh, the church at large and yet seeing the need to try and offer something distinctively evangelical yet ecumenical. uh, We thought, let's give it a shot. Let's give it our best. And so uh, what is ecclesiology, you asked, Matt?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So it's the the study of the church, uh, the doctrine of the church, um, reflecting on it. And we'll have opportunity to engage how Brad and I sought to frame our own particular approach as we proceed today on ecclesiology. We're gonna do a series of talks, right? Or reflections on ecclesiology as we go through the book, Exploring Ecclesiology and Evangelical and Ecumenical Introduction. So, uh, but it's the study of the church and uh, understanding the church in terms of its identity as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the people of God, uh, so on and so forth, dealing with the sacraments, its worship, its mission, uh, its uh, order, uh, its authority structure, uh, so many other facets to it uh, that we need to account for and we sought to account for in the book. So and then- Matt,
1: just, just to follow up with that too, you know, I think, one of the things that really moved me to want to do this is that, um, you know, as I looked back at the history of the church and how early Christians thought about what it meant to be a Christian, um, Paul, I, I know you're worried about this light coming down from above, but this is it. This is this is the spirit descending upon me.
2: Yeah, there's such a contrast. You have the light behind you, and I am, <laughs> I'm in darkness. <laughs> so.
0: They say, that's what I- watching is seeing right now (laughs) it's it's the contrast that's That's why we did the book together
1: so um you know you talked to people in the early church about what it meant to be a christian uh if 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 a non-christian person that asked a christian person "What, what does it mean that you're a christian the first thing they would have said was not i invited jesus christ into my heart to be my personal lord and savior i mean there's a sense in which that was true but it's just not how they saw it it's not how they thought about it i mean the first thing they would have said probably, most people, is something like, I belong to them, you know, I'm, I'm part of this community, this community of faith, we, we believe together, we, we live life together, we serve together, we, we take the sacraments together, this, this community is what defines who I am as a Christian, and, and for especially 20th century evangelicals, there was just very little of that uh, in our theology of what it means to be a Christian. But what I found interestingly with uh, as I started teaching millennials is that they were moving away more and more from some of those simply personalist definitions of what it meant to be a Jesus follower and thinking more about what does it mean to be part of the community. And following Jesus is about being part of this, this, this community, this movement. So that's another part of it.
0: So does that play into then the subtitle? Because the subtitle is, you know, uh, an evangelical and ecumenical introduction. So what is that, breaking that down, evangelical and what's ecumenical? I mean, they sound smart, $200 words. So what are they?
2: Right. So ecclesiology, as we said, is uh, the study of the church, understanding the church in terms of all those facets we uh, listed and more. Uh, evangelical, uh, I think both Brad and I appreciate uh, David Bebbington's Beving- uh, quadrilateral as a historian, how he reflected and reflects upon evangelical. As, as we know, evangelical is often a swear word in our society at large today. Uh, we're not talking about right here and now in this discussion, uh, the perceptions of evangelicals. We're talking about Core distinctives historically that we would hope would be true presently for evangelicalism. But Bebington talked about evangelicalism, you know, cruciform. Uh, it's about crucicentrism, is one of his points. The emphasis on the cross of Christ and the centrality of Jesus and what we call his atoning work and his sacrificial existence. Uh, it's activism. Evangelicals are grassroots, and that's a strength. Strength, it can also be a weakness depending on the issue, but activism, uh, engagement at the grassroots level, Uh, also biblicism, something Brad alluded to earlier. Well, of course, the Roman Catholic Church and Lutheranism and Orthodoxy certainly prize Scripture and have a, a place that's central to Scripture in their own context. When we're thinking about biblicism, we account for a certain kind of evangelical exposition and Uh, exegesis shall we say Um, but you know where is it written where is it written where is it written Uh, coming out of the reformation tradition sola scriptura which never meant solitary confinement it does account for the church for Lutheran and beyond Uh, so activism I mentioned biblicism crucicentrism and conversionism what Brad mentioned earlier about you know having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ even though scripture doesn't use that language as such you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live to Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's Paul living by faith personally, relationally, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That um, conversionism uh, is part of it. And so evangelical is that. Brad, uh, would you like to speak to ecumenism as what that means for people?
1: Yeah, um, maybe one of the ways I would describe it most simply in my own teaching is that I tell my students all the time, if you're going to do theology well, you need to think vertically and horizontally. Vertically, you need to think through 2,000 years of church history, because every period in history has its own blind spots and its own hobby horses, and those tend to distort the faith in one way or another. And you also need to think horizontally. You need to think um, across the whole spectrum of Christianity and Christian denominations, uh, because each Christian movement or denomination, again, has its own blind spots and its own hobby horses. So, if you're going to do theology well, you need to think broadly, you need to think integratively. So, when we think thought, you know, ecu- ecumenically, you know, Paul and I wanted to bring into uh, this conversation about the church my Roman Catholic. Uh, background, Paul's Lutheranism, Paul's exposure to Church of England and the Greek Orthodox Church. And uh, because as we spent time in these communions, we found that they had things to contribute to our theology, not only just of Christianity, but of the church that we were not given by our evangelical background. Uh, they They were spots that were missing. They were empty spots. We found some of those in these other traditions, and they made our evangelical upbringing and understanding the church much, much richer. And so we wanted to create this type of conversation that would do the same thing for our readers.
0: Yeah, so uh, what about uh, this idea, evangelical ecclesiology? Uh, the, is it even possible, given uh, evangelicals focus on you talked about this, Brad, this personal relationship. So the focus on the individual believer uh, much of the time. So how do you then approach this challenge um, in the book?
2: Well, one of the things we mentioned in the introduction is that it, it certainly becomes challenging, right? Uh, if, if you wish to say, and we do wish to say, that the individual Christian is constituted by the church shaped by the church that the church is of primal importance to our salvation not window dressing not secondary but it's constitutive that that proves challenging for evangelicals uh bound up with what brad had mentioned earlier that you know i have a personal relationship with jesus christ the church can easily be seen as an add-on, even an important add-on. It's not to demean how evangelicals are trying to uh, approach the church. We just think that there has to be more to it than we go to church to enhance our uh, experience or relationship with Christ. We're saying, I'll say it one more time, that the church is constitutive of our salvation. Um, And I always struggled with this in certain kinds of high church contexts I remember where, you know, I'd be in a service and, you know, the infant would be baptized, you know, welcome now your brother or sister, uh, you know, of faith uh, in the body of Christ, something to that effect. And I thought, well, and I grew up in this context, but I always had that kind of evangelical thrust. I thought, well, the person hasn't believed yet. You know, we could get into all that. We're not going to get into how Lutheranism or Anglicanism or, Even the Reformed Church looks at this in addition to Catholicism and uh, orthodoxy. But just to say that that always was a challenge for me to think through that. But while I won't go there with baptismal regeneration through baptism, whether of a believer or of an infant, nonetheless, the church constitutes. It shapes us at the deepest, deepest level. And so in the introduction, we talked about the challenge for evangelicals uh that the church is often the doctrine of the church is like an add-on doctrine not critical in importance yeah
1: i mean you know protestants in general and certainly evangelicals would would have, have often said for many centuries you know that there are certain christian denominations groups catholics you know um Anglicans, whatever, who, too, who put too much emphasis on the church, and it becomes too structural and and too rigid. Um, and 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 there's of course there's some truth to that, but as usually happens in these kinds of historical reactions, the tendency is then just to go to the other end of the pendulum. And of course, when you know individualism, personalism comes along with the Enlightenment, that just turbocharges this whole kind of individualist. You know, Christianity is me and my walk with Jesus and wherever I go to church, the church doesn't really matter. Um, but it's, you know, it's fascinating. Um, I mean, some of my Catholic colleagues used to say to me sometimes, yeah, for you evangelicals, a charismatic teacher with a Bible in his hand has as much authority as 2,000 years of church history, you know, and and it's a fair critique, you know. Um, and and so, you know, we began, you know, thinking about what is, what is this constitutiveness of the church, the authority of the church, You know, have in terms of its history and its play in the life of believers. One of the things I found too is that, I mean, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was an explosion in evangelical seminaries around the country in studying church history, especially going back to the early church fathers. You've got guys like Thomas Oden, you know, who comes out of liberalism and and goes back and just says, man, we just need to study the early church fathers and and becomes much more conservative, you know, in his view of of theology and this type of stuff, and, and people are starting to listen to guys like Thomas Oden and Robert Weber and going, my goodness, you know, this there's a lot here for us, and, and it played into something that, again, I saw with millennials is that millennials, as they began going to church, um, a whole lot of them felt they needed to move away from this kind of rah-rah um, worship service into something that had more substance to it even physical substance so you find these young millennials that are that are leaving and going to the catholic church right or the or the anglican church and even those who stay in evangelicalism start creating these new churches where they start doing the unthinkable in american evangelicalism and that is taking the eucharist every sunday you know which of course you only ever did once a month or once a quarter and actually even calling it the eucharist (laughs) you know it's it's ancient name and so so it's funny how there's this, this coming together of evangelicals starting to study church history and academic environments, millennials saying, we want some more of this structure and substance. Um, so, you know, I think it's really kind of taken off. Yes.
0: Yeah, so do you guys, um, because we talked about like there's not a doctrine of the church, when you talked about, you brought up the solas, because there's not a sola ecclesia, you know. Uh, so Went that possibly with the Protestant understanding because they don't see it as so important as it's not even one of the five solas. So then how do you uh, account for that? Like to get Protestants into understanding, though, even though it might not be one of the listed solas, it's still constituent as you're speaking of.
2: Yeah. And by the way, do you hear the noise in the background? It sounds like someone's building the Tower of London next door, but it's uh, with the torture chamber and the like it's carpentry work going on. Is is there a lot of noise, Matt?
0: Uh, I just think it's probably the wind.
2: Okay, so uh, in answer to that question, um, you know, I think for Luther that was a given, and Brad's certainly what? a historical theologian, uh, historical uh, thinker, and you know he might wish to uh, add or challenge what I'm saying here. But I think for Luther, it was a given that the church was central. It was central to his thought. Um, Even as Luther develops what we take to be Reformation teaching and Calvin as well, it wasn't that they were trying to separate themselves from the church. Uh, In fact, Luther never meant to leave catholic church i don't think luther ever meant to leave the catholic church he wanted to see reform in the catholic church but he didn't want to leave just like wesley i don't think ever intended to leave anglicanism Uh, so for luther and calvin it was a given that the church mattered they were dealing with other things and uh, that they thought needed to complement and direct the church and also i should add that in their debates with Catholic thinkers, you know, for example, Augustine was of pivotal importance to both sides. And they wanted to make sure both sides, Catholics and Protestants, wanted to make sure they had Augustine on their side. So they were trying to make sure to make the case that what we're saying is in keeping with the Augustine. And will the real Augustine please stand up? Early Augustine, late Augustine, all that. So though that was a given for them with the doctrine of the church it's much more of a modern phenomenon of course you have the nation states development and you know if luther had arisen 100 hours, uh, years earlier i don't think we'd have had a protestant reformation he'd have been dead uh john huss what happened to john huss would have happened to luther but the catholic princes of germany and the like they didn't want cousin or uncle charlie to have his way as the holy roman empire And so as the nation state's starting to develop, they were willing to support and protect Luther because they saw a connection with the German language and autonomy from always having to go through Spain or Italy and the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, And I think that that type of dynamic played into some of these divisions. Well, there are so many complex factors.
1: Yeah you know okay so there's a reaction right from the from the reformers and they they want to go from church domination to something a lot less like that and they i mean you know when you ask calvin you ask the 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 reformed tradition you know what what is the church well the church is the place where the scriptures are rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered there you go i mean and of course they say a lot more about the church but that's that's the issue and that's a that's a really, really small definition of the church compared to the, the Catholic definition, which involves structure. It involves hierarchies and offices and those types of stuff. And and while Lutherans and, and and Calvinists had those things, they weren't they weren't part of the basic definition of the church so much in the way they were in the Catholic Church. And so uh, you know, there there is a minimization there. It it is a reaction, uh, and and it's funny. You know, in that definition, rightly preached and rightly administered, it's it's a really thorny reality that you need to listen to because the question then becomes, who decides when it's being rightly preached, and when the sacraments are being rightly administered? In the Roman Catholic Church, that wasn't a problem because the bishops decided that, right? But now you have a structure that doesn't have that kind of centrality anymore. And so what you end up with is if there's another enough argument about rightly, then they just divide. And you see this starting happening very, very early in the Protestant Reformation. My PhD mentor was a Presbyterian. He was the first Presbyterian to get tenure in theology at St. Louis University, which is a Jesuit university. One day he was moderating a debate between you know, two Catholic scholars who disagreed strongly over a very important issue of doctrine. And, and as he introduced the debate, he said, you know, you Catholics are amazing. He said, you guys can disagree with each other dramatically over a very important issue of, of doctrine, and yet you stay Catholic. We Presbyterians, when we disagree with each other, we just go start a new denomination, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, and there, there is a sense of... Of, of truth to that, that we as Protestants, I think, need to be pretty self-reflective and, 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 and self-critical in saying, golly, it's easy for us to just separate and go start another church. And of course, what you also get with that is Catholics don't, as a rule, historically, have cults. Cults are a Protestant phenomenon, Right because you can just get a powerful teacher who can dra- attract a bunch of people and they go out and they follow him. Whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, when somebody does that, the bishops can say, um, excuse me, <laughs> you're not Roman Catholic, right? So it's fascinating, you know, that the whole history of that.
0: So when uh, you guys were writing this and we've talked before on table talks about new wine in last week, we were talking about Trinitarian theology. So Would you share just a little bit about uh, that your Trinitarian and Kingdom focus and why did you choose uh, these two foci for your work? The Trinitarian and Kingdom focus, foci.
2: Well, I think in part it was because of the the passion points coming out of our respective doctoral programs for Brad uh, doing his doctoral work on George Ladd and he can speak more to this of course. Um, But George Ladd, uh, his important work in evangelical circles on the kingdom of God Uh, now and not yet type themes. He did that uh, in St. Louis and thinking through the history of evangelicalism and complex engagement, multifaceted engagement of the kingdom of God theme. uh, For me, King's College London uh, with uh, its robust emphasis on Trinitarian theology. We talked again, as you said, Matt, about Trinitarian thought recently uh, here at uh, Table Talks Live. Uh, so for us, these were our passion points. And certainly Brad has really influenced my thought on the importance of the kingdom of God in all of theology. And for us at New Wine, New Wineskins, in our work, and no doubt we'll have opportunity to engage that as we proceed in weeks ahead. And for me, it was really bringing to bear um, that emphasis on the Trinity. And so even at the outset, we'll talk more about this in a future discussion uh, on, on the book. The church is a trinitarian community outside the trinity there's no church is one statement we made you know thinking about the early church saying outside the church there's no salvation Uh, we went so far as to say outside the trinity there's no church because it's your trinitarian reality what difference does that make and while we want to account for the individual a theme that we made sure to address uh, constructively in the book it's never an individual in isolation. It's always in relation and community. Like Brad was saying, the millennial generation desires more of that robust, multifaceted connection to the body at large. So those were key reasons why. And we just thought that really builds, for us, not only placed within evangelism, we, evangelicals need to deal with that more, the Trinitarian kingdom reality. But also, it situates us in the church at large because you know, Protestantism didn't come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. It precedes Protestantism, and the kingdom of God precedes everything. Uh, so we felt that that was a good, those were good foci to connect all the dots and provide threads to tie together all of the book.
1: Yeah, the issue for me of the kingdom really goes back to my, uh, my childhood and, and then starting to study the theology of George Ladd in college, um, you know, I grew up in the 1960s uh, where the evangelical church in America, um, much of it was still highly influenced by uh, dispensational premillennial theology. And um, there's, it's a complicated reality, but one of the aspects of dispensationalism was this idea that the kingdom is not here, that Jesus came and preached it, but the Jews reject it. So Jesus said, Okay, I'll do this other thing for a while with the church and then I'll try again with the kingdom, you know, with the Jews later on and we'll make this thing work. But that, so the church is not part of the kingdom and the kingdom isn't here. And so um, one of the things that that created with this idea of the kingdom not being present in the life of the church at all is uh, is kind of this um, disengagement from society. Because the kingdom of God is very involved with culture, but if the church is really not part of the kingdom, it's just kind of this parenthesis where our job is to hunker down and wait for the second coming, right? And so it it led often to a disconnection from society, kind of an us against them approach to the world. You know, I grew up with this 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 in this environment in the church where where the word world was was not a good word, and the world was other. It was them. It was evil it was the flesh, and, you know, there's a strong separation. What I began to see as I just began reading other theologians, especially George Ladd, on the kingdom, is this idea that the kingdom is not here at all is unbiblical. That, in fact, the kingdom did come, in part. And that the church is the community of the kingdom, and the community of the king. And that while the kingdom is not here fully, it has not yet been consummated, it is present and Jesus has brought it into the life of the church. And the job of the church is to live out the values of the kingdom as a prophetic and loving community in the world. And so this speaks not to an us against them. We're going to hunker down and wait for the second coming when the kingdom finally comes. It, 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 it comes down to a, no, 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 the kingdom is active now. And what that means is the church needs to be involved in culture, but because the kingdom is not now in a situation of conquest and will not be until the second coming, the church living out the values of the kingdom is not to conquer culture. And, and in so many ways, in American evangelicalism, I think we've got we we either live in one of these extremes. Either we exit culture, completely disengage from it, or we want to conquer it um, for Jesus, both of which are deeply problematic. And with a with a here and not here, now and not yet understanding of the kingdom, it's a very different focus. We don't disconnect. We're involved. But our job is not to conquer. Our job is to love and to speak prophetically and to let Jesus do his work uh, until he comes again.
0: Yes. Yeah, so would uh, the book be, um, or I guess would uh, uh, Niebuhr's uh, Christ in Culture sort of, uh, you know, goes through the different paradigms as far as Christ in Culture, like you're saying, or Christ transforming Culture. So it would supplement that then correct your book the exploring ecclesiology in the sense, or or support it that it's not a domination it's much more of that transformative um, entrance into culture uh, that is being the church
2: well as, as you know I mean Niebuhr's typology his fivefold typology I think does account for situations in the church uh, in, in Christendom where there can be dominance uh, I think he meant them as more descriptive categories, and he thought all of them have their place. Um, None of them uh, ultimately um, hold center stage, though some would say Christ transforming culture really is Niebuhr's go-to type. Uh, But I, I, I wouldn't say that we are trying to at all follow Niebuhr's model. We make use of Niebuhr's model in the chapter on uh, the church as a cultural community, but then we mess with it, so to speak, and complexify it by drawing from Bonhoeffer and his engagement of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And so um, we're certainly not wanting a Christ against culture model, though there are times when the church needs to be against culture for culture. Um, just like we need to be against ourselves, but it's never—it should never be us versus them. The church is always to be for the world, even when challenging the world. Just like we as evangelists should be for the whole church, even if we are a reforming movement. So that's that's um, our posture at New Wine. Uh, that's what we desire to have as a posture. And uh, but you know we would hear sermons all the time growing up, and even more recently, the world, the world, the world. Equated with culture and culture is bad. Not thinking about the world system is what Scripture is talking about. That's what uh, I hear Brad referencing. It's the world system that is, but that's not to be equated with culture. Uh, So, um, just we could we could go on on that point, and we'll have opportunity to do that in a in a future. Following
0: up, though, would you guys just uh, briefly then outline uh, the philosophy, the thought behind the structure of the book, then, Brad.
1: Well, one of the things we wanted to do is to make the book really accessible to people and, and whether they were theology students or just anybody wanting to read it um, and making it accessible with Paul Metzger's writing is a challenge, but um, the structure of it anyway, was that um, we wanted people to see how this theology, while it may seem a bit heady, actually really applies to life. And so what we did is we ended each chapter with a series of practical questions, application questions that we're trying to help people think through, okay, how do you take this esoteric academic theology and engage your life with it so you can look at this and go, oh my goodness, this makes a difference in how we live as the church. This makes a difference in how we treat women, how we treat, you know, uh, immigrants. Uh, this makes a difference in our relationship with government, you know, those types of things. We, we wanted people to really make the connections to practical life and to the real questions that people ask.
2: So, for example, when it came to uh, the Churches of Trinitarian Community, we followed that up with individualism. Uh, so, each major chapter, like chapter one, had chapter two as a follow up cultural thrust and I still hope that Brad and I are going to do a, a, a textbook on the doctrine or on, on theology uh, as a discipline uh, called systematic theology uh, framed similarly uh, we just have to get along on most days of the week where we could actually sit down to do something like that that's the problem though We we have no trouble dealing with Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy it's one another we have trouble with so that's why we wrote the book uh was to try that's and why, find. Something. That's
1: why COVID has been great for me and Paul because we don't have to be in the same room anymore and I can that's just get right. that mute button. It's so great and I just I watch his mouth move and I don't have to hear what he says and when he stops I turn it back
2: on again.
0: <laughs> right, true community.
2: That's right. And so church as a trinitarian community followed by individualism uh then it was the church as a trinitarian or sorry as a kingdom community, church as a kingdom community. And then I believe we dealt with uh, environmental issues uh, in in that context. Uh, how does that bear? Was that true, Brad? Was that that how it worked for you? <laughs> I haven't Read the book in a while. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but it's it's uh, that kind of emphasis throughout.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think? Uh, um, since uh, you wrote it, it's been uh, eleven years since its release. So, a couple of things. What do you? What has been the response to it? And two. Um, is are there things that you wrote that now you look at the church today and you go, hmm, we might need to revise that because of today's culture, today's church, today's understanding. There's been a lot that's happened over the last couple of weeks or even a couple of years with the understanding of the church with some church leaders, whether it's Hybels or whether it's Falwell. So 11 years has passed. You look back and you go, yep, that's it still stands or some of these things we could possibly revise based on. Cultural things, the doctrine, the theology is still solid, but our engagement of culture might change based on what's going on today. So, what has been what you look back at it now, 11 years, the response, and would there be revisions? Or, you know, how when we put together a second edition, sometimes you revise or you add to what about uh, this book?
1: Yeah, I, um, I, of course, we would revise it, not necessarily to. To change what we wrote before, to turn against it, but to realize that changing culture means we go to address things in new ways. Um, not that the church has dealt with the issue of women in the way I think we should, but we're we're farther down that road now and doing better with that, I think, than we were 15 years ago, uh, and I, and I'm glad for that. Uh, uh, I think today we would need to to be saying more about race and class, you know, than. Than we said in the book, although we did address it some, but it's just this is becoming a huge fo- focus. I mean, I think what's going to be interesting isn't what I think now, but especially in the midst of what we're dealing with right now—the pandemic and the social upheaval in the country—two years from now, what am I going to think about? You know, how we should write this book? I think that's going to be a really interesting question. I think one of the things too that is coming, and and I think the pandemic is going to is going to even further this is. Although it was probably starting to decline, I would say that when, you know, we were writing this book 13 years ago or so, the megachurch was still ascendant in American evangelical culture. And it is definitely declining, in my view, in terms of its influence. Um, this generation of young people, large many of them do not see the megachurch as the future of Christianity. And I think the, the pandemic is even going to turbocharge that reality. So that would, that would again make an impact. And how do we deal with that? If we see the decline of the megachurch, um, what does that mean? And how does, that fit? how does the theology of the church deal with home churches you know, and these small groups and things like this, which are now starting to pop up? And, and I think that's gonna be a fascinating area for study.
2: Yes, and you know, related to what Brad is sharing, uh, you know, just think about churches having to go to Zoom right? Uh, And what does that mean? I mean, it's agony for a lot of churches. Of course, we've had multi-site churches and the like where you might have the pastor on the screen in a satellite campus speaking. And and we did deal with some of those types of phenomena in in the book, but we'd have to deal with that a lot more. I think the issue of Faith in science, uh, you know. I just think with how the church is engaged in that subject, as you know, we we had a major grant through the American Association for the Advancement of Science at Multnomah Seminary, where we teach that New Wine spearheaded and it was how to incorporate science in the seminary curriculum to help train up pastors. And you know, when we think about COVID and we think about race and responses as far as churches meeting during COVID in mass assembly, or how pastors speak to race issues. When we think about sexuality and gender, when we think about the global church, uh, these are all themes we sought to deal with, but they're heightened. it's not like all of a sudden there's racial turmoil. There's always been racial turmoil. We, we sought to account for it, but there really is a racial reckoning. We don't want to miss that moment. And I think if we were to edit and revise, um, we'd have to account for those things in in a more and um, an even more robust manner. And the the one last thing I would I would add there is that uh, we've been been encouraged that there's a Korean translation and a uh, that's already come out and a Chinese translation in the works. And it would be fascinating to sit down with uh, pastors and students in those. Um, great countries and think through how they process this, you know, book written by two American evangelicals, uh, white evangelical males. I mean, that's, we situate ourselves. We want to account for our situatedness. We, we cannot speak macro. We speak from our situatedness, but it would be fascinating how they navigate that book um, and to account for more of their voices as we move forward.
1: Yeah, I just, that's a so good point. I think to one of the things that we would probably pay more attention to and maybe do more work with is um, how do the marginalized think about the church? How do they imagine the church, right? Paul and I are both believers that we have a lot to learn from liberation theology and um, the theology from from the place of marginalization and suffering. Um, I would want to put more of those bring more of those voices into our own theology of what the church um, should be uh, as it um, as the marginalized create it and 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 live it out
2: yeah and and i really appreciate this opportunity to engage this and just you know, at New Wine, as Matt, you often say in our, our proceedings, you know, New Wine Skins about being stretched by Christ's New Wine. I think hopefully we're growing to want to be stretched more by Christ and in community. And when, I mean, there there is a reckoning for evangelicalism. Uh, you know, I've been told so many times people, I was out on the East Coast doing research for five months on a social ethics book, and I was told by Academics, or you should drop the evangelical label. I'm too stubborn, you know, I'm Hungarian, German, Swedish, uh, you know, that's a, a triad of a combo, so to speak. And I'm not going to give up this hallmark, not a hallmark card, but this, this cherished tradition that I value in terms of Wesley and Wilberforce and, and so many figures in the 19th century, John Stott in the 20th century. I, that's why I'm an evangelical in Bevington's quadrilateral. There's a place for evangelism, but there's a wake up call and there's a reckoning uh, for us as evangelicals because I fear, and it's not that we're the only ones, but I fear that in ways that I've never thought possible. Yeah, we're always problematized. We're all complicit, but our political social agendas um, so often reflect uh, a, a kind of consumeristic politicized reality that does not reflect the politics of Jesus's kingdom. And it was James Montgomery Boyce that was calling this out, a very conservative reform pastor at the end of the 20th century and then he passed away. But there's a reformation that's required in terms of the lenses that we put on in terms of how we see the gospel and what we're promoting to the world it's, it's disturbing and I'm, I think we have to deal with that if we are to edit. And of course, we're part of that movement and we're not gonna say we're better. No, we're part of that movement and and, and we're evangelicals and we need to grow, we need to repent. Um, where am I complicit uh, in these matters? So I think that's also part of it. I think it's a great question you ask us.
0: Uh, do you think, um, and I just bring this up because of the generational aspect, um, you had uh, uh, Franklin Graham tweet something about response in his uh, support, so uh, an aspect of evangelicalism for Donald Trump, but then you had the granddaughter tweeting and saying my grandfather, uh, Billy Graham, would be disgusted to see how he, the evangelicals sort of being propped up politically with uh, the son. You know? And so do you see uh, in the exploration of ecclesiology today uh, Brad, you mentioned a couple of things where the megachurch was on the ascension uh, early on when you were writing, but now you see it on decline. So is that a generational thing where the granddaughter sees something different from evangelicalism of the Graham family compared to the son of the you know, this heralded uh, superstar? Uh, same thing with the church where a granddaughter or someone in their 20s and 30s is going to think of the church differently than someone in their 50s and 60s.
1: Well, yeah, I think there are generational things going on. You know, American evangelicals in the middle of the 20th century saw themselves as a persecuted minority, uh, which they weren't. But what had happened is is they had been so in charge of all the frameworks of culture for so long and then lost it at the beginning of the 20th century and really after the Scopes trial, they began to see themselves as a persecuted minority. And so, again, there were, tended to be two responses. One was just to, um, you know, uh get out to 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 disconnect from society and create this holy kind of huddle over here. And the other one which really began later in the 19 late in the 1960s and 70s was was to take culture over, to take culture back uh, with this idea of this is the downside of Christ the transformer of culture, right? The Christ who comes in and says, all right, we're gonna change this culture politically, socially to look like you know the church. And um, the, the problem of course, one of the problems of that is that then it became very attractive for evangelicals to connect themselves to people and institutions of power. And, uh, and, and we've done that a lot over the last you know five decades um, and it has not been to our good. It has not helped us to engage society broadly um, it has helped us retain some power, um, but then it has not
2: helped us at all engage the marginalized. Um, and, and to Brad's point, you know, I think uh, a book that is well worth the read and the reread over and over again was by the, the pivotal um, post-World War II theologian for Evangelicals, and that's Carl F.H. Henry. Uh, his book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, where he dealt with, you know, we were not addressing in our, you know, departure from culture, uh, post-scopes trial, like we, we're not engaging in the racism, we're not engaging in the classism. It was uh, a gospel that was very otherworldly and removed. And then James Montgomery Boyce, and I mean, again, that was reissued, that book with a foreword by Richard Mao, saying this is a pivotal book. And then Boyce comments on that article in that article I mentioned on that book and says it's the all too easy conscience of evangelicalism today. And he said, we did not take to heart what Henry was saying in the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism. And now our conscience is all too easy with consumerism and wonderful families and, you know, two cars in the garage type of reality. And that's where we are focused uh, in our rights um, over against the rights of those whose rights are not accounted for. So I think that this is all something that needs to be accounted for in our day, front and center.
0: So uh, moving forward, how does the book, um, you know, there's a question asked uh, the connection to New Wine. Uh, the, the New Wine is concerned about this building relational bridges through Christ. Uh, so, how does the book come into play with New Wine, as well as then your work as professors? But then also for tomorrow, eleven years ago it was written, but it still speaks into today. So how can it then be used, or how do you use it um, in moving forward in this engagement of culture and being the church?
1: Well, I, I uh, the the staying power of the theology of the book, to me, is the church as a trinitarian community and the church as an eschatological community, community of the kingdom. Those are deeply rooted biblical realities that are part of the biblical narrative from the beginning to the end. The, 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 the story never steps away from those realities. They're always there in the foreground or the background. And because of that, I think those two elements, and they're not the only key elements of the Bible or for ecclesiology, but, but they're so central and they're so important. To Christian theology as a whole, and ecclesiology particularly, that I think Paul and I will continue for the next decade to be looking through those lenses uh, to help us do better and better at at imagining a theology, a biblical theology of the Church that actually engages wherever we are in culture, right? Because those two lenses, the Trinity and, and the came of God, they never change. They, they are what they are, and, to the, and, as, and the better we understand them, the better we're going to be able to do theo, ecclesiology and um, shape ecclesiology to apply to whatever is going on in the contemporary era.
2: And, and that's really where our hope is, right? I mean, our hope is not ourselves. We love the church uh and not simply the universal church but the local church not simply the local church but the universal church a church through the ages the church across the globe but our confidence isn't ultimately in the church but it's in the lord of the church it's the triune god who loves the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because of god god will make sure that that um will will not happen the gates of hell will not prevail And it's the triune God's eschatological kingdom. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell with them. That hope goes from Israel's history through to the church. Israel and the church, Israel and the church. And this triune God is always going to be for being with God's people and being with the world and calling all the spirit and the bride say come. And so that, that Trinitarian kingdom reality, now and not yet, is what gives us hope. And for us at New Wine, uh, you know, and Brad was a pastor for 13 years in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, so he's always thinking about this as one of the directors at New Wine. We always are thinking at New Wine about how do we partner with the local church? And Matt, as you know, in, in your own leadership role at New Wine, having been a pastor in several contexts and embedded with your family in the life of the church, And as a a theologian yourself, a professor, you're always thinking the life of the church. And we talk at New Wine about education, consultation, transformation. How can we partner with the church in terms of this New Wine paradigm, building relational bridges through Jesus and contemporary culture in a variety of ways? How do we provide education, consultation for the sake of community transformation in collaboration with the church? We need the church. We need the church as a university and a seminary. We need it as New Wine. Uh, it's Christ's bride is the church, not not a seminary, not a university, not a New Wine. We see ourselves hopefully as allies, um, prophetic, also deeply captured by the reality of the church.
0: Yeah. So as uh, we continue to seek to be stretched, our wineskins stretched, uh, we just want to just pause for a moment and say, hey, if you're interested in in you want to continue to press into this dude named Jesus and what it means to build relational bridges. That's what the heart of new wine is. And so on the other side of Dr. Metzger right now, you'll see a subscribe button because uh, we want you to subscribe. You go to our YouTube page and once you subscribe, then you'll be notified by uh, when we upload new videos, new wine tastings, new wine on cork, as well as the new wine table talks. Uh, This is live on Facebook every Thursday. We're going to be going through this book, Exploring exploring Ecclesiology. But we also want you to be an active participant in it. Some folks have been able to post uh, questions, and we have questions and comments when we do this live TV, uh, live video session with uh, the Facebook Live. So please feel free to participate. But then also check out uh, new-wineskins.org and see how you can actually become a member of New Wine because we uh, understand that the church is us. You know, and like uh, uh, Brad was talking about, there's no division. It's a community, and we are into the community. It's a movement of new wine, and there's multitude of ways that you can join and participate. Also, if you're a podcast person, anchor.fm forward slash new wineskins. It's called the New Wine Cast. It's the new wine listening experience, and you can go. And so when you're out on your walks or you're on the bike or you're, you're traveling, you're you can throw that podcast up, uh, It's found it, find it on Spotify as well, uh, as well as then our Facebook page. Before you leave here right now uh, from this video, go on up to the top right corner of your page and hit like. And that way, whenever something gets posted, if you've noticed the uh, last couple of posts, if you've been here, you've seen that uh, Patios, is a, it's a big blog posting and they've been featuring uh, Dr. Metzger's stuff because of the engagement of culture. Um, And we've appreciated the last couple of weeks, we had the ability to talk about Trinitarian theology and then the church. And like Dr. Harper and Dr. Metzger were saying, from that kingdom and that Trinitarian perspective, and that's what uh, New Wine's all about. So for this dude on my left, uh, Dr. Harper, and the one below, Dr. Metzger, we are stoked that you join us today. Make sure that you you put on your calendar right now, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so that uh, you can see uh, when we meet again here Facebook live and join us for next week as we go through chapter one of Exploring Ecclesiology. So for these two guys, I'm Matt Barlow. This has been New Wine Table Talks. We will see you on the flip side.